This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. In the past fortnight, two government agencies have revealed mounting concern about the intensity and the impact of online misinformation, and the world's biggest platforms agreed to a code of practice to rein it in here in New Zealand. This week, also, the Minister of Broadcasting and Media signalled a willingness to confront the mega-profitable platforms which spread misinformation with new rules and maybe even new laws. Meanwhile, the government's also slowly reviewing how we regulate media content. So is this the opportunity to finally make social media more accountable? It's quite sad, really, that we'd need a government agency that is a fact-checker. But first, how the media cashed in on condemnation of the cost-of-living crisis payments this week while those in need went well and truly under the radar. Well, it's been the story of the week, the rollout of the first cost-of-living payment. Joining us now for our weekly interview is National Party leader Christopher Luxon with some thoughts on this. Good morning. Morning, Corin. How are you today? That was Corin Dan on Morning Report last Wednesday, and he wasn't wrong about that being the political issue of the week, which preoccupied the news media because of those who got the money but shouldn't have... On Today FM on Wednesday, Government Minister Kitty Tapu-Allen told Tova O'Brien systems developed in haste were never going to be perfect. When you're in a crisis and you're trying to get funds out the door, there's only a few ways by which you can design a very quick and efficient system, essentially overnight. But bad news for the government made it a good news day for National Party leader Christopher Luxon, getting questions like this from Tova O'Brien. This might just have won you the election, Christopher Luxon, the kind of ultimate symbol of failing to deliver. But could a modest sum of one-off spending or misspending, depending on your outlook, really deliver a change of government? Hayden Donnell takes a look at how the media cashed in on the cost-of-living crisis payment controversy this week. Well, what a slap in the face to hard-working Kiwi taxpayers who pay tax only for that to be given to people around the world who haven't been in New Zealand paying tax for many years in some cases. That's Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis on Monday morning, launching the first salvo in what ended up a week-long assault on the government's cost-of-living payment. At the same time, Stuff was running a story about overseas Kiwis who had been offered the payment incorrectly, including a scientist living in Salt Lake City and a chemical salesman who had been in Switzerland since 2004. The prospect of non-residents getting money from our government was met with rising anger among our cohort of media commentators. Over at Today FM, Rachel Smalley argued the payments showed Labour is unfit to lead. What a screw-up. This could be the defining moment in Labour's leadership. It should be. It is inept. It is irresponsible. It is chaotic. It is economically and fiscally reckless. At today's talk radio rival News Talk ZB, hosts Nick Mills and Heather Duplessy Allen blasted the payments on their panel show, The Huddle. Nick, how do you feel about the cost of living payment going over to temporary migrants who've returned to Australia, India, wherever they came from? It absolutely blows my mind. I think that why didn't they let the employers actually do it, make the payment through the companies? That would have been a better way. Why didn't they give food vouchers out? That would have helped inflation. There's a whole lot of different ways they could, could have given us a tax no, break. They... Some government ministers didn't exactly help ease the tensions. Today FM's morning host Tova O'Brien was aghast as Revenue Minister David Parker accused ineligible people who'd been offered the payment of criminal misdeeds. The Frenchman, as your example, he will know or should know from the information that he has received that because he is no longer resident in New Zealand, he's not qualified. Therefore, 
for him to get the payment, he would have to be acting fraudulently. It is possible that he could get it. You're putting this on him. He's the one that got the email. He didn't want this. He's the one that got the email from IRD saying, you're eligible, this is your bank account, we're going to give you some free money. The pressure on the Prime Minister and her senior politicians kept ramping up. After the stories about how the payment had gone to too many people came another round of stories about how it had gone to too few, with the IRD confirming roughly 800,000 eligible people hadn't received the cash when they were meant to. National leader Christopher Luxon turned up to his media appointments on Wednesday morning with a pre-packaged zinger ready to go. Here he is on Morning Report. Yeah, I just think you know, the government's become a political version of the office, to be brutally honest with you, and getting things done. Here he is on Today FM. Well, I mean, I mean, to be honest, Tover, it's becoming the political version of the office, isn't it? And here he is on the AM show. Oh, I mean, the whole thing is an utter, utter shambles and a total, total joke, Ryan. I mean, you literally can't make this stuff up. It's become the political version of the office, I think, to be honest. Repeating the same joke three times on different platforms is a bit like something David Brent would do on the UK version of the TV show The Office. Still, in a slot on RNZ's 9 to Noon, Business Desk founder Patrick Smelly argued the criticism is likely to stick. If you say we're giving $350 to goodness knows how many people overseas, and that's the biggest problem for the government is that the IRD doesn't know the answer to that question, inevitably that's political poison. It just looks incompetent. It doesn't really matter whether it's 20 people or 25,000. Smelly called the story political poison, and his point is pretty compelling. It's not ideal for a government to look at once profligate with its spending and unable to direct that spending accurately. But the true political impact of this scandal also rests on the underlying assumption that most New Zealanders will begrudge their former compatriots a few hundred bucks during a global inflation crisis, and that's not been proven despite much of the media taking it as a given. On Scoop, left-leaning commentator Gordon Campbell argued the benefits of a universal scheme outweigh the downsides of some misdirected dollars. He said many of the New Zealanders living abroad who got the payout were paying off student loans or otherwise doing it tough. Any of the New Zealanders resident overseas could use any assistance that helps them meet the various costs of living wherever they are. Others noted that New Zealanders abroad are hardly the only ones who have been lavished with arguably unneeded taxpayer cash in recent times. Last week, financial journalist Bernard Hickey took aim at the companies that have taken large sums in COVID wage subsidies only to post large profit without repaying the taxpayers who helped underwrite their gains. One of the companies Hickey specifically targeted is the owner of the Herald and Newstalk ZB, NZME, which laid off 200 workers in 2020, took in $8.6 million in wage subsidy cash, then later posted successive profits. Despite that, it isn't opting to pay back what it took in taxpayer support and is in the process of paying out its shareholders $15 million in dividends and share buybacks. It's hardly alone in that approach. Fletcher Building, for instance, took $68 million in COVID support ostensibly to retain workers, then laid off 1,000 of them and announced a $227 million profit four months later. It hasn't paid back its wage subsidy either. Though the outcry over these taxpayer-backed corporate windfalls has been muted in comparison, they make the estimated $7.5 million in wrongful cost-of-living payments look like a rounding error. Perhaps the more compelling criticism of the cost-of-living package came from people less concerned that the government has paid people who don't need it and more concerned that it has failed to pay those who really do.
On Morning Report, the Salvation Army's Peter Barber pointed out that beneficiaries were ineligible for the payment despite struggling the most with high rents and spiralling food prices. Yeah, well, we've said right from the start that we're disappointed that um, this additional payment um, was not didn't also go to the 345,000 people who are uh, reliant on welfare, who have the lowest incomes. Um, They're just as hard hit by the cost pressures and, and greater need in many ways. He had a possibly surprising ally in a former Minister of Social Development for National. Paula Bennett, who once announced a welfare crackdown on solo parents by informing them that the dream is over, told News Hub that beneficiaries should have been the first in line for the cost of living payment. And I do. I feel like I'm in a really, really privileged day. And then you think about how other people on such limited incomes will be struggling so much more than you are. And, yeah, quite frankly, my personal opinion is um, if anyone kind of needs a temporary payment at the moment for those exorbitant costs. It is those on a benefit. Bennett isn't the only person using her media platform to home in on the often dire realities facing the poorest New Zealanders amid the cost of living crisis. On last Sunday's episode of TVNZ's Q&A, host Jack Tame grilled Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern over the government's record on reducing child poverty, which children's charity Kids Can says is worse than ever. You will still hear me talk about New Zealand as a place that should be free of child poverty. Absolutely. Because anything less, in my mind, anything less demonstrates that we don't believe that things can and need to improve. Absolutely. An A for, if a, an, an a for aspiration, an E for if execution. I may, if I may, then. That E for execution line echoes the findings of a special investigation into child poverty from TVNZ's chief correspondent John Campbell in May this year. It criticised the government for failing to fully implement any of the 42 findings of its Welfare Expert Advisory Group from 2019. National has also hammered the government over its record on poverty, with housing spokesperson Chris Bishop pointing out this week that the number of people recorded as living in cars has quadrupled to 480 since Labour took power. However, National's biggest policy to address cost-of-living pressures, a tax package which gives more to the rich than the poor, was the subject of confusion this week as it appeared to be dropped amid criticism from the left and right before being resurrected within a day. In the end, despite the week's headlines, the more enduring point of attack for our media may not be our politicians' accidental generosity, but rather their more deliberate stinginess. Hayden Donnell there, reporting on how the media covered the cost-of-living crisis payments this week, mirroring the party political point scoring, while those actually in need went mostly under the radar. Have I ever lived with Tova? Yeah, yeah it's, it's one of those rumours floating around. You know, you used to live with Tova, you were flatmates, that's why she goes no. so easy on you. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> no, no. That was the Prime Minister on the talk station Today FM back in March, talking to the co-host of The Toba Show, Mark Dye, who put to her a couple of the conspiratorial rumours about her and her partner, Clark Gayford, that had been circulating for ages. No, we have not lived together. And I could... For about every other uh, little conspiracy theory you've just shared this morning, but I'll probably spare the listeners the time. And while Jacinda Ardern just laughed them off there, it was no laughing matter when rumours like that first emerged back in 2018. 
Now, at that time, media inquiries to the police prompted an extraordinary statement from the police commissioner that it was untrue that the Prime Minister's partner was under investigation for anything. And several newsrooms got a lawyer's letter at that time reminding them that the rumours were defamatory and could spark legal action should anyone repeat them in the media. And they didn't until this year. When Today FM launched back in March, the Tova show aired a satirical song lampooning the paranoid people who were circulating those rumours and it went pretty close to hinting at the defamatory stuff that wasn't fit to air. Sweating, blushing, <laughs> laughing, crying, all simultaneously. We've addressed every single rumour that we've heard. And can I say it's all a parody, which means none of it's true. Yeah. 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 Yay. Yay. And it also Allegedly. means you can't do us for defamation. Yay. Allegedly. Yay. No, but, but I, do, I really do feel sorry for them, though, because some of the rumours floating around are ridiculous, and yes. it's always coming from the same people. And coincidentally, just days later, a youth-focused music podcast called Kick, published by major media company NZME, did blurt out some of that scurrilous stuff about the Prime Minister's partner. And last week, that resulted in a statement of apology that acknowledged that the rumours were based on baseless lies and that a confidential payment had been made to settle the matter. But there's little accountability for misinformation online or for the platforms that allow people to push it. Now, coincidentally, last week, Tova O'Brien returned to those rumours about the PM and her partner on her Today FM show, and she told listeners the rumours had now spread so widely there's nothing funny about them anymore. Thanks to social media, and probably also thanks to how seemingly innocuous and arguably plausible these rumours are, they've been picked up by all of us. Now, on Today FM, Tova O'Brien went on to say it wasn't just gossip for gossip's sake. It's not funny, it's sad and it's scary and there are people out there who need help and instead powerful propagandists are taking advantage of that. Tova O'Brien even urged the government to act now on malicious online misinformation though she acknowledged that her idea wouldn't go down too well with those already distrustful of or hostile to the current government. We need more. There is no minister or government agency specifically tasked with monitoring and dealing with the increasing threat posed by dis and misinformation. That should change. It is time for a misinformation minister. The title might need some work, could be misconstrued, could be counterproductive. This was not a paid message. But last Monday, one government minister did say that he's on the case. Who is the minister in charge of social media? Is it you? Uh, I suppose so. <laughs> and we're, trying, we're going through a whole content regulation review right now, and, we're, and I'm waiting on some of the results, and we're working, working that with uh, um, uh, Jan Tanetti and Internal Affairs. Uh, look, look, uh, there's a lot of things out of control, but I, I, I'm trying to bring some balance to it. Speaking on the spin-off podcast The Fold, Broadcasting Minister Willie Jackson told Duncan Grieve that he, just like Tova O'Brien, has also been alarmed to hear online misinformation recycled by people he knows, including relatives. Now that review of media content regulation that he talked about there, run by the Department of Internal Affairs, is a complicated piece of work. It's reconsidering the roles of several regulators which reign in our mainstream media and publishing these days, and it's also pondering extending the regulation to the mostly unregulated internet that's become increasingly influential in informing people and misinforming them. And on the spin-off podcast The Fold, Woody Jackson pointed to the problems that confronting that could entail. I think, well, with this content regulation, we'll be able to... We need to bring a set of rules to the table, right? We, we have to. At the same time, you have to balance those rules with freedom of expression. You know? Yeah. Like, how do, you, how do you manage... Like, they'll say, well, we'll watch whatever we want to watch. 
and we will come back to that in just a minute. But Willie Jackson went on to tell the spin-off that he'll soon be meeting the likes of Google and Meta, the parent company of Facebook, to discuss all of that and more. Now, just last week, one of the official media watchdogs that's up for review, the Broadcasting Standards Authority, released new research showing that more New Zealanders than ever before are now worried about digital social media platforms fueling misinformation and making it harder to identify the truth. And they noted that this has happened just as social media has overtaken free-to-air television as the country's single most consumed media source. Now, this was revealed by a survey of public attitudes to accuracy in the media, and we'll look at what else was revealed in the details of that another time here on Media Watch. But while people can and do go to the broadcasters, and then to the Broadcasting Standards Authority, if they see or hear something inaccurate on the air, as things stand, it's all but impossible to successfully challenge fake news online, and the volume of it is only increasing. Just last week, for example, the news agency AAP published a story headlined No, New Zealand Police is not launching a probe into vaccine deaths. A month ago, self-described independent news and entertainment website News Punch made that false claim in a story shared widely on Facebook with the headline Jacinda Ardern left reeling as New Zealand Police look at investigating COVID jab deaths. Now this story said that the fringe group called New Zealand Doctors Speaking Out With Science had written a letter to the police requesting an investigation. But AAP's fact-checkers found there was no evidence at all that police were following up on this or had any grounds to. Now, AAP is Australia's national news agency, and it was nice of them to debunk yet another piece of COVID-related fake news being shared widely online here. And on the face of it, it was also nice that titanic tech platforms Google, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon and TikTok all signed up last week to a code of practice to reduce harmful online content here, including misinformation. Now, this was put together by our national online safety agency, NetSafe, for last week's Net Safety Week, and it was hailed in several media reports as a world-first agreement. But on News Talk ZB last week, Mike Hosking told NetSafe CEO Brent Carey he was sceptical. Well, have they committed or just said the right thing? That's the problem with big tech. Big tech say one thing and do another, and we all know that, don't we? Well, with this uh, code, we've got an accountability mechanism, and I think the real interest here is public complaints. So people will actually be able to complain and have it independently uh, assessed through this uh, administration and also uh, through uh, an oversight committee, which is, is unique. Are we all agreed on what harmful content is? Well, I think that's why we're going to look at it through complaints, because people will have to test those. We've got some de- definitions, and they're going to have to evolve over time and see what is in and what is out. But if that comes to pass, well, that would be yet another self-regulatory media body that people can complain to. And media commentator Andrew Holden, while noting the good intentions, on 9 to noon last Tuesday also stressed the absence of teeth. There's no financial sanctions as such. If anything, it sounds like the worst sanction is that they'd be asked to leave the agreement, which isn't really a sanction at all. So, I, you know, it's understandable that there are some people saying this is all very nice, but actually some concrete legislation that would have uh, proper penalties in place would be better. So it's a kind of betwixt and between, I think, isn't it, Susie? It's good to see that this kind of thing is being done and that social media giants are aware of it, but what will be the impact of the real power that they'll apply to it. 
Now, also this week, Stuff Technology writer Tom Polastreka said that the code doesn't actually commit the digital platforms to very many specific measures. The signatories can pick and choose which measures they agree to implement and which ones they don't think are appropriate to them and they can ignore. Maybe, probably not, but just maybe, it's a start. And what alternative is there, other than that hope? So it remains to be seen if this is just a box-ticking exercise that actually only requires the powerful platforms to tick a few boxes. But on Newstalk ZB, the net users group Toa Toa reckoned that the companies supporting that new code of practice were actually trying to avoid more aggressive oversight. Toha Toha is one of the critics. The CEO there is Mandy Hank. Hi, Mandy. Hi. You reckon that they've signed this to avoid regulation? I think that this is definitely related to the ongoing work that DIA is doing around online content. So, yeah, I think that this is an attempt to preempt that regulatory framework that's coming down the pipeline at them. Well, that regulatory work in the pipeline that Toa Toa's Mandy Hank spoke of there is the review of media content regulation, which we heard the Broadcasting and Media Minister Willie Jackson mention earlier, which has run through the Department of Internal Affairs with Minister Jan Tanetti in charge. Now, the stated goal of that is creating a modern and flexible framework to mitigate the harmful effects of content, irrespective of the way that content is delivered. And what they're pondering is replacing the range of agencies we have for monitoring the media now, the Broadcasting Standards Authority, the Advertising Standards Authority, the Media Council and the Classification Office, which is effectively the nation's censor. And in its place, they want a digital age system, possibly even a one-stop shop covering all those functions and operating at arm's length from government. And for the first time, online outlets, including social media, could be classed as media service providers and obliged to abide by standards, just like the established news media and broadcasters do today. So in essence, bad stuff on the thus far mostly unregulated internet could come within its scope. And in theory, this really could oblige offshore tech companies to curb misinformation or be penalised. The current government's review says that content can cause harm to individuals, communities and society. And one of the possibilities is the development of harm minimisation codes with legislation setting out minimum standards for harm prevention and moderation. And this could even mean the creation of new criminal offences and penalties for non-compliance. But, as the Minister Willie Jackson said earlier in that spin-off interview, the difficulty with that is not just safeguarding freedom of speech but fundamental press freedoms as well. And good reporting that's clearly in the public interest might well cause some distress or harm to certain people or groups. So, how far has the government got with all this? Well, one round of consultation with news media has been completed and another one has begun on the framework for all of it. And MediaWatch understands that Cabinet will soon consider a proposed new regulatory framework with details to be published later this year for public input and discussion. And we'll certainly be discussing that here on Media Watch. But while the government and the media industry ponder how to handle harmful stuff online, the social media platforms continue to evolve in unforeseen ways. Within the last fortnight, users of Facebook and its sister platform Instagram have found their feeds feature far more stuff from influencers, celebrities and even random strangers and less stuff from their friends, family or favoured sources of news. The reason for that is that Facebook's owner Meta and its head honcho Mark Zuckerberg is fighting off TikTok, the Chinese-made video app that's growing fast 
and now has more than a billion users around the world and plenty here in New Zealand as well. Now, artificial intelligence-driven algorithms are shaping much more of what Facebook users will see from now on, and what this means for the spread of misinformation here in New Zealand isn't yet clear. But lately, there have been warnings about possible overseas influence on New Zealand politics. The Electoral Amendment Act, introduced to Parliament recently, set out changes to be made before the next election, and last week, RNZ's Morning Report said the government's considering a separate fix to prevent big foreign funders secretly influencing our elections, including via online social media. Now, if that sounds unlikely, well, it doesn't in the UK, where the 2016 Brexit vote was influenced by deliberate disinformation. Former News Hub Europe correspondent Lloyd Burr covered that issue during three years based in London, including the multi-millionaires who bankrolled the bid to leave the EU. Now, these included the so-called bad boys of Brexit, Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore, who popped up during the 2020 election campaign here, promising a social media on steroids campaign getting in behind New Zealand first. So this week I asked Lloyd Burr if this was something New Zealand should now take seriously and if he agreed with his former News Hub colleague and current co-host at Today FM, Tova O'Brien, that New Zealand now needs a Minister of Misinformation. I don't know the solution to this and I don't think a Minister for Misinformation is the right role to police it because a Minister is always partial, right? You can never have an impartial Minister. There would need to be some kind of maybe more removed from the partial politics kind of thing, maybe as in the ombudsman or they're kind of the same debate they're having around the children's commissioner or the children's commissioner's board or whatever at the moment. Where does it sit in social development ministry and all that type of stuff at the moment? And where would it sit that allows them to be completely impartial? It's quite sad, really, that we'd need a government agency that is a fact checker that then passes issues of misinformation onto the police and the police go and hunt them down and charge them. It's a, I mean, it's a sorry state for the society to get to that point. Understand the sentiment behind what Tova's saying, that there is lots of misinformation going around, and there's always been fake rumours when you're a public figure, right? And it's going to be an issue that becomes bigger and bigger when you've got all these different platforms in which people can say absolute false stuff. But people have always been saying false stuff. I think it's just the way that they're sharing it is quite dangerous at the moment. You were the Europe correspondent for News Hub based in London and, and you know, post-Brexit vote Britain, I guess, where... There was a lot of angst about that decision being made and being influenced by um, misinformation from um, the Leave campaign and others. And you had this fascinating encounter with a couple of people involved in that, Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore, big money guys claiming for a time they were going to get involved in New Zealand politics, trying to hook up with New Zealand First and back Winston Peters. We will, we will, ensure, we'll ensure that voters have a choice. They will see what Winston Peters stands for and his party. It will give them a choice, and they won't have to rely to get their information from the mainstream media. They can rely on the platform that we will create for him, which allow voters to look directly at what he's got. They were completely upfront about wanting to have influence in New Zealand, even though that particular intervention seemed like maybe just a bit of showing off and and didn't come to, to anything. But do we need to be concerned about people like that, that for whatever motivation might want to get involved here? 100% we do need to be wary of people like that. Big foreign money coming and influencing politics. And that's the reason why I did the story, right? Aaron Banks did bankroll a whole lot of the Brexit campaign, Nigel Farage's Brexit campaign. He's one of Nigel Farage's best mates. He really liked Peter's um, type of politics. And the reason that I went out there, and it was bizarre, took the train out to Bristol and and then Ubered out to his massive kind of castle. He's got a castle and it's got a petting zoo and all of this weird stuff in the background. It's open to the public. It's kind of strange. And they were completely open to 
to doing this interview, and they did tell, and I thought that they were going to be bankrolling New Zealand First, you know, chucking a whole lot of money into it. Mm. And you did see some social media that came out of New Zealand First at that time that was, um, Winston will be the handbrake on this out-of-control Labour Party, that kind of stuff. But that principle of someone somewhere, whether onshore, offshore, with resources, might want to do what Banks and Wigmore were talking about, you know, on steroids, social media stuff, in order to you know, pump up one side of a, a political election debate, that's something we should definitely keep an eye on in 2023, you think? Absolutely. And anyone could do it. Anyone from overseas, if you've got big money and you'd like to influence New Zealand politics, you can. It's so easy to do from afar now, and I think that is something that we should be worried about. Former News Hub Europe correspondent Lloyd Burr, now an afternoon host on Today FM. And next week we'll hear more from Lloyd on Media Watch about his investigations into what went wrong in the Labour Party in opposition and what such political post-mortems from the past can teach us about politics in the media today. Last Monday, roughly half the population of England turned in to see their women's football side, the Lionesses, become European champs in front of a record crowd of almost 90,000 people at Wembley Stadium. And the unprecedented public buy-in for a women's sports event has been hailed as a turning point. And that was what Captain Leah Williamson was talking about when she told the BBC this in a raucous post-match interview... And a bit of that energy would go a long way when the Women's World Cup Games are held here next year. But those scenes on Monday were not on our TV screens. I looked at the reasons why on Midweek Media Watch this week with Karen Hay. That's in our podcast feed if you missed it. But one thing that isn't an issue for women's football teams in many countries now is homosexuality. Plenty of players are out, and some have even played internationals against their own partners playing for other countries' teams. But this week, the first ever male black cap cricketer came out as gay in a remarkable short doco published by the spin-off. In the latest episode of the Lost Kiwi Sporting Heroes series called Scratched, funded by New Zealand On Air, Former 1990s fast bowler Heath Davis revealed not only that he's gay, but also the lonely struggle he had to keep it secret back then. Yeah, going to saunas and seedy places to get sex because he didn't want to be seen. I was repressing it. I wasn't leading a gay life with Mount and Wellington. He wasn't explicit about it. You know, he told me and maybe that and maybe told some other people and that might have given him some, you know, some form of release. People are also quite oblivious. You know, they didn't have the gaydar on at all in 1990s New Zealand cricket. That was the voice of Stephen Mather, a former Wellington teammate of Heath Davis. Now, the Reuters news agency picked up this with a short six-line news story with the headline, Former Black Cap Quick Davis Comes Out as Gay, and that was widely run in the media here. But there was plenty more about Heath Davis in that short doco, about growing up a bit feral, in his words, in the Hutt Valley, and even playing one first-class game on LSD. Not recommended, also in Heath Davis's own words. And he also talked about how he lost a foot in a forklift accident at work in Australia, leading to one of the bleakest and most deadpan gags you're ever likely to hear in a sports doco. So I had to amputate. And came back to Auckland later on to visit people and said, oh, look, I just had to get rid of it. <laughs> I couldn't stand stepping over the line anymore. 
that's the test of the man, that he can have a, an injury that's really is quite severe and come up with no more no balls for everyone else's pleasure. You'll find a link to that film on the spin-off website. Just look for the headline, Finding Heath Davis. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media, though, at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.